0: Welcome to the Million Vegan Grandmothers podcast, and I am so excited to have Corey Davis here. Now, before I knew about Corey, which everyone's like, do you know Corey Davis? I knew about Brenda Davis. I was a student at Hippocrates Health Institute when I was healing Crohn's and colitis, went vegan overnight, um, started loving Sprouting and wheatgrass and alkalining my body and becoming a, a body electric. And during that time, I'd heard about Brenda Davis, Brenda Davis, the nutritionist from British Columbia, who is an amazing author. Well, this is the son of Brenda Davis, but Corey stands alone in his plight to help bridge our growing system, how we grow our food how little of land we need to grow our food and how sustainable it is to be plant-based, to be plant powered. And also, I know Corey, that you are deeply involved with the indigenous people of your area, the First Nations people, and trying to lessen the impact of our consumer uh, world on them. So that's a lot. Thank you, Corey, for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you today.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So just jump right in, Corey. Tell us a little bit about the projects that you're most excited about right now and how this came to be for you with the direction you headed in. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you so much. Well, first, I'd like to say, you know, I'm zooming in to you from the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island in Canada, and I feel it's important to say that um, the word Comox is actually derived from the indigenous Coast Salish word Comox, meaning land of plenty. And that's the traditional territory of Comox First Nation, on whose land I'm blessed as an uninvited guest to have the opportunity to be part of a community, build a sense of place, and benefit from the environment. And I, I benefit from the environment in two ways. I benefit from its beauty, the recreation, my sense of place, my spiritual connection to nature, the mental fortitude that it provides me. But I also benefit from its degradation. My home is on private property, once perhaps home to someone else when the idea of land ownership was formed. Um, And with my home, I've essentially removed the ecosystem and its functions uh, from the footprint on which its foundation lies. I I benefit from the environment through logging the forests, which we built the walls and structure, uh, to which I find solace and peace of mind in this humble, secure location. Uh, Looking back, it was once an orchard, right, this property. And before that, um, it was wildlife habitat, perhaps a home to wildlife and Indigenous peoples. And I think it's important whenever I think about our impacts on the land, what that historical um, situation, what the historical story is. And perhaps we could get more into it a little bit later. But I think it's really important to bring that historical perspective into the conversation. Because I find in conversation with many natural resource professionals. That we've lost our point of reference, right? Um, That context of what the ecosystem was before when we set our baselines for what we're trying to manage it to be, right? And bringing in that perspective, I think, is very important. But we could talk about that a little bit later. How I got to where I am, well, super privileged to be the son of Brenda Davis, when, and I was just telling you this before we started recording, but in 1988, my family decided to go plant-based. My mom, you know, and my dad, they came from a small northern town in Ontario, rural, a very hunting-focused, vegetarian, just wasn't a thing. There was nobody who was vegetarian. They didn't know anybody who was vegetarian, but mom asked dad, um, Perhaps hesitantly, can we try this? Can we try going plant-based? And my dad said, I thought you'd never ask. My dad's a very reserved man, um, but he is very thoughtful and caring. And one of the things that I learned from him, one, one of the things he always focused on was how to minimize his footprint on the land. And um, when he leaves the land, he wants to leave the softest footprint he can. And those values, I guess, provided some context for who I would become. Um, I remember, I was always empathetic. I, I think a lot of children are born with this sense of empathy towards animals. Right. We anthropomorphize everything, even rocks. You know, a kid could be like, oh, I don't want to hurt the rock, you know, until they learn. Right. I think we're all kind of born with this inherent empathy or or many of us are anyways. Um, I was about four, three, three or four years old. I can't remember. Um, Long time ago. But I can remember this conversation. We used to have birthday parties at McDonald's, right, when we were kids. And I was going to a friend's birthday party and, you know, mom and dad, they were only plant-based for a couple of years at this point. But I was going to my friend's birthday party at McDonald's and mom thought that it was important to tell me the difference between the hamburgers we eat at home and the hamburgers that are served at McDonald's. Perhaps I was old enough. Perhaps she just wanted to be honest with me. And I always appreciated that with her. She does so amicably. Right? She never forced it down my throat. It was always my choice. She just wanted to tell me. Mm. Um, so she pulled over in the parking lot of McDonald's and said, Corey, I just, I I feel like I want to tell you something. That the burgers served at McDonald's are not the same as the burgers served uh, at home. They're, they're not the same. The burgers from McDonald's are made from, Cows and the burgers at home are not. And I looked at her, I was just so shockingly confused. Like, mom, people do not eat cows. Like, how ridiculous is that? Like, you know, um, but she just looked at me with these eyes that you know, of sincerity. And I reflected and I thought, but you no, know, cows, they don't have eyes.
0: How mm-hmm. could
1: we? how can we do that? And it's still, still feel that way. And I I told myself, you know, mom told me that story again, when, when I was growing up and I said to myself, you know, I'm never going to lose that. I I don't ever want to lose that. And people might think it's naive or childish, um, but it's something very precious to me that I want to preserve in my life. And also, you know, my father, with his values of preserving our environment or just leaving that softer footprint, uh, he instilled that into me from an early age, not by telling me, right? He never told me. What he did was bring me out into nature on, on canoe trips, things like this, and really connected me with nature so I could nurture that um, that value myself. It was something personal to me that... I took ownership of because I developed that value um, with his facilitation, I guess you could say, and that led me to both those things. Led me to a career of activism from a very early age. In two thousand and four, I was maybe fourteen or fifteen at the time. Went, uh, I I left school. I was pre- perhaps grade ten or so. I left school. Um, To go on the Compassion for Animals Road Expedition, where I started to explore the relationship between um, not only animal rights, like the harm we cause animals, but the relationship between the food we eat and the environmental impacts of those. So I was just becoming familiar with that. And I started giving cooking demonstrations at, at that age all across the United States. We went to um, gosh, over a hundred cities in the United States, and I gave cooking demos on environmentally friendly cooking demos, and they were all vegan, right? Um, because I truly believe that that is the most sustainable, especially um, living in a developed country where I have the resources to do so. Um, I'm privileged and I, I have that, that choice. Some people do frame it like veganism as a privilege, um, you know, perhaps in some settings. But my wife, by the way, she's from China. Um, being vegetarian was never considered a privilege there. She was telling me just the other day, actually, about this something I learned recently, that when she was a kid, um, veggie meats, they, they were very common. They were never common here. And in Canada, I remember there wasn't much of anything back when I was a kid. But when she was a kid, it was very common. They were cheap, much cheaper than meat. And so whenever she would go get a snack, she would always want to get the meat one because it was a status symbol. It was a status symbol of privilege. And that makes sense because it is a lot more resource intensive to produce um, perhaps in China, they had economies of scale to um, to put on the grocery store shelves all of these plant-based meat products at the time, but it was considered poor. Um, my in-laws right now are staying with me. They've spent the last year with me uh, to get permanent residence here in Canada. It's such a, a wonderful thing to have them around. I, sh- I certainly appreciate them so much. But... Um, when they were sending pictures of the awesome dinners I was making them to their friends, uh, they mentioned that their friends said, what, you can't afford meat kind of thing. So on one hand, I I don't necessarily think it's always a privilege. I know in um, some countries, you know, you might eat meat rarely um, because it, because it is cheaper and less resource intensive to eat your beans and rice with a little bit of greens. Right. And so having a chicken would be a com- communal thing that would bring together your community and eat it together maybe once a month. Right. Um, so, in terms of privilege, I'm not sure about that. In places like the Marshall Islands, which are tolls, finger islands in the Pacific Ocean which are disproportionately feeling the impacts from climate change right now, they don't have a lot of agricultural land. And, and traditionally they found sustenance in, in fish. And it might be in cases like that, that um, it would be privileged to to be a, a pure vegetarian. So I think it's, it's quite um, local, I guess, where that privilege comes from. But I certainly feel privileged I can't remember where I was going with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is your background, Corey. and, And I guess the one thing I would like to say at this point is thank you for your beautiful, humble presence. That is what has struck me the deepest when I first spoke with you over the phone is this gentle, humble spirit. I pick that same energy up from your mom as well. And it's just like, we're just caretakers. We have nothing to flaunt nothing to judge. We're just caretakers. And my last podcast, I would, you know, I had the honor of interviewing Bobby Sud and a filmmaker and activist Bobby Sud. And, you know, he said, I'm a seven generation Texan. I get the barbecue thing. I get how it's brought people together for forever. It needs to change, but I need to understand the people I'm working with instead of just get them to understand me. And I don't think, I don't talk to people with the belief I'm going to be able to convert them to veganism. I talk to them in hopes that they will listen, but that's impossible unless I listen to them. And I see that in you. I see that you go into the the different um, energies of the different tribes and say, you know, I understand. I understand your history. I understand how you have lived self sustaining for many, many years, many decades many centuries probably, yet if we are able to bring the water back, to bring the soil back, to bring the trees back, we can take desertified land and turn it into something amazing like they do at the Satna Forest. I was hoping to go to, the grandmothers were hoping to be at the Satna Forest Festival this February. Um, political disrest has made it so i can't go into india now but we know and Satna forest is just one example and i'm sure you have many where we take the certified desertified lands and we turn it into something beautiful and self-sustaining so talk to us a little bit about that um in your background talk, maybe you can talk a little bit about your education how that came to be and what you've seen happen for the good
1: sure sounds good um yeah my educational background i first after high school i went um to become a outdoor educator uh just because of my connection with nature i i became a canoe instructor and uh I got sea kayak guiding license and things like that. I gave interpretive hikes and canoe lessons and gave rock climbing lessons. and really enjoyed that. And then I I suffered from an injury. I tore a bunch of ligaments in my foot. Of course, that work didn't really pay well, so I I couldn't afford my rent. So I decided, well, I'm going to go back to school. And I started in the social sciences because I, I didn't really do that well in high school to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I had some struggles back then. So I couldn't get into sciences or, or any big programs. But I did get into the social sciences. And in the social sciences, I took the sciences. I took biology. And I took these courses, which I really excelled at. So I, in that, I, I was one of the top 50 students in college um, in the entire college. I, I really tried, I really wanted to be the best I could be now that um, I'm in post-secondary up in the big leagues. And I really, really appreciated being in the social sciences because it gave me a lot of perspective on people as just people, the human condition, how we interact. Um, it provided me with perhaps more empathy towards people as well, and communication. but. In doing the social sciences, I had an environment club that I became really passionate about. I was doing surveys on Mission Creek, monitoring the uh, macro invertebrate, invertebrate populations, um, as I learned from one of my ecology classes I was taking for my social sciences diploma. And my biology instructor said to me, You're probably one of the only kids I would recommend to go into the sciences. And I was so passionate about the environment that I thought, you know, if this is what I'm truly passionate about, I'm going to pursue this. So after that program, um, I went to Selkirk College in Castlegar, British Columbia, um, and I did a technical diploma in environmental land use planning. I worked uh, doing land use planning, natural disaster management. I did some engineering work for resource roads, forestry resource roads in particular. And after all that, I decided to go back and get a Bachelor of Science degree in environmental sciences. And after that, I did more forestry. I worked with First Nations a bit and um, did all kinds of cool stuff, worked on agriculture, I worked with ranchers, I, I worked on renewable energy projects, really cool stuff. Um, and then I decided, you know, I'm a very passionate person, but I also want to be very thoughtful. And I already had kind of a wide background, education-wise, academically, um, from you know, just understanding the rocks from rock climbing, and interpretive hiking tours, social sciences, applied sciences like environmental planning and academic sciences. I thought I have some pretty strong views about industry and business, and I don't want to make any assumptions, and I really want to have a, a systems view If I'm going to talk to people about issues I'm passionate about. So I went, did a master of business and a master of international management, which is just intercultural management, pretty much. I wanted to be a better communicator with people. So I did that. And here I am. I continued working with indigenous peoples on a wide variety of different projects, Um, worked in mining, even doing that. And here I am. Uh, after my master's degree, I wrote "Plant-Powered Protein" with my mom, where I really got to do a bit more of a a light dive into the environmental impacts of food, uh, just as a quick synopsis that uh, that the public could absorb and understand without getting into any technical details. And here I am, and what I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation was the importance of the historical lens you know I find it really interesting to think about how it is that we find ourselves and the world we find ourselves in and the landscape we find ourselves in especially in North America because I think it's such an epic interesting story one that, provides clarity on perhaps some of our collective cognitive biases that drive some of the behavior we see. Um, We all find ourselves individually to be empathetic. I think most of us do, you know, we all see the best in ourselves and I see the best in everyone too. We're all wonderful, but collectively, we end up making some pretty bizarre choices that, don't necessarily seem rational from our, our individual perspective. How does that happen? You know, How did we get to be here? And I think there's a lot of history there. Our culture is built up upon foundations of historical background of our culture, where we came from, uh, and our families, where they came from. And it's hard to disassociate ourselves from there. I should say step back from that and take an objective look. In the Americas, it's an interesting story, and I always like to tell this story when I talk about it from from Europe, starting in Europe, in the British Isles in particular, uh, you know, the Great Britain, Ireland. Um, back in maybe the sixteen hundreds. In the British Isles, people dramatically altered their ecosystems that they now characterize. I mean, they made extinct numerous reptiles, amphibians, birds, insects like the copper butterfly, the Eurasian elk, wolves, reindeer, um, wolves perhaps a bit later in the 1700s, the brown bear, the gray whale, lynx, um, the wild boar, and the Eurasian beaver. And a large driver of these extinctions were overhunting, land use change. Um, For example, wolves, lynxes, and bears, the the predators, they were persecuted and they were hunted um, while habitat for their prey was degraded from deforestation and habitat fragmentation, land use change. They were killed to pay tribute to kings and, and to nobles. Um, There was a lot of fear mongering about the danger these animals have to people. Um, And interesting, I'll I'll just put a, I'll I'll put a pin in that for now. Notably, these animals were a danger to the livestock sector as well, which they were not compatible with. We often hear the narrative about being dangerous to people or the overhunting or habitat fragmentation. We often don't hear, well, what were the economic incentives that drove this kind of behavior. And the livestock sector was certainly one of the major drivers. And uh, for-
0: We see that really big time in Alberta. And so everything that is not an herbivore is the farmers have permission to kill. And and they become, so even the coyotes uh, around my piece of land that I, that I have the honor to be on is the coyotes are like, do you hear the coyotes The spring? Everyone's worried about their dogs because of the coyotes. And I think what happened is the place where we walk, they had some pups really close. They had a den really close. So they they were being quite assertive about us getting close to there. So I just stopped walking there for the spring and the summer. But it's this big fear. Oh, coyotes. Coyotes are moving into the river valley. Coyotes are... And we have created a fear of nature. And I'm yes. very concerned about it as a, as a grandmother, what that's going to instill in my grandchildren. And I say, look at that beautiful moose. Oh, you know, listen to the coyote. My daughter's scared because of her dog. So yeah. Yeah. I
1: really appreciate that. And we can expand on that before. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit, Mm because I think it's important, um, both from a philosophical perspective and from an ecological perspective. There's a really good book, actually, I'd recommend to you by Dan Flores called Coyote America. It's a beautiful, beautiful story about, about coyotes in America and their, I guess, epic journey to be what they are and where they are today. And it even includes some of the historical perspectives from First Nations, some of the mythology and lore, but a lot about human interactions and how we perceive them to be a beautiful, beautiful book. I I can't recommend highly enough, but um, perhaps philosophically, when Europeans came to America, one of the things, and historian... Uh, Richard White, I believe, put it in this very beautiful way or, or this way that really resonated with me, I should say. He said that America would go from a biological republic, which is where animals and people were philosophically equals. Indigenous peoples had all these themes about Wildlife actually pitying humans and with wolves having noble human characteristics, right? Um, and, and many of their stories. It would go from this biological republic to a biological monarchy where anything that got in our way um, was a threat economically or just in our way in whatever form was killed, murdered um, for our soul, God given. Right. So it would shift philosophically how we thought about animals that was bringing that European perspective to North America. And it's actually kind of funny because, you know, in the British Isles, wolves went extinct pretty much right by the 1700s. And they came here and um, they characterized wolves in North America as cowards. And the reason is that they characterized them as cowards was because wolves would avoid humans, right? They, they didn't want to interact with us all that much. They just kind of avoided us. They weren't the vicious, um, scary beasts of werewolf lore that lingered in the psyche of Europeans post-extirpation in the British Isles, you know? Um, which is a cultural meme which still persists to this day. and in that, you know, characterizing them as cowards um they also saw it as there there were some explorers, there's some really great quotes and I don't have any of them in front of me right now, but just to I guess paraphrase or summarize some of them, they they thought, you know, what value do wolves have? they they eat our, are animals that we like to hunt right they they have no purpose they eat our livestock and they you know how great would it be if there were no more wolves think about how many more elk and deer and things would be out there um for us to exploit and for us to eat and to hunt and think about you know how great it would be to have hunters from all over come here and there's no wolves there'd be such an abundance, such an abundance of these animals that we could hunt. That was kind of how it was. And we used poison traps. We used all these things to just kill as many coyotes and wolves and bears even as we, as we could. Um, there is no great plain grizzly bear anymore. Uh, animal I would have loved to have seen at some point from a distance. Love to have seen. Um, One thing we didn't realize back then, and we've made a lot of decisions in settling North America that in hindsight weren't very wise because we just didn't know. Like we settled along, um, we love to be near water, of course, but um, we like to build on flat spaces near water, especially. Well, those. Just so happen to be like alluvial fans, which are um se- can be severe geotechnical hazards. They're a sign that landslide has occurred and it's going to happen again. It's a flat space near water, or there are floodplains, you know. It's not very wise to, you know, we did things like that. We we developed all kinds of floodplains. It cost us a lot of money, the taxpayers' money from the damage it causes to infrastructure now. But we also, you know, decimated. Um, apex predator populations. And we tried to get rid of the coyote as well. Unsuccessfully, the coyote seemed to have found um, adapted its behavior and came into urban areas and all kinds of things like that. But we did decimate um, a lot of apex predators. And I gave the example of the Great Plains grizzly bear. We extirpated wolves from Yellowstone Park, which is a really famous example, I think it was in the early 1900s, was it the 1930s, somewhere around there? And we just reintroduced them back in the 90s, um, which is a really good demonstration of the impact, or the role, I should say, that predators have in our ecosystems. Ecologists call call, uh, the impact that predators have on ecosystems, they characterize them um, by trophic cascades is what they call it. And a simple trophic cascade model would be, um, you know, wolves, a uh, healthy wolf population, they would manage deer populations. And by managing deer populations, it prevents the land from becoming overgrazed, right? That's a very simplified model. And it's important, like overgrazing is, can be, very detrimental. It could erode stream banks, it simplifies vegetation, so it reduces both biomass and diversity in vegetation, huge impacts. But we, what we didn't realize, and we're only beginning now to, to understand, and I don't think we'll ever fully understand, no, but um, that these impacts of apex predators are more far reaching than we ever thought imaginable. Um, It plays a role in carbon sequestration, in disease control in ecosystems. They have roles in the biogeochemical exchanges in air, water, and soils. There's massive implications for nutrient cycling as well. Um, So there's a lot of benefits that apex predators have in our ecosystems. Some have characterized apex predators as um, building resilience to ecosystems in the face of change, like climate change. Really important to have apex predators. And you mentioned coyote, the, the meso predators, right, the smaller predators, And they too have huge implications for nutrient cycling. There's studies that show the importance that they have for cycling nutrients in the environment. Um, And along that line of thought, um, we've removed a lot of these predators to protect the economic asset, which is livestock, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That's big. And we regularly see campaigns as you as you mentioned, to call wolves, bears, even grizzly bears um, here to protect that asset. But not only apex predators, also herbivores. So there's been recent campaigns to kill elk, to call elk um, for two reasons. One, because elk were competing with cattle for forage, for grass. And there's a perception that elk might transmit disease to cattle, like bovine tuberculosis, which, by the way, is a disease that was introduced to wildlife from European cattle to begin with. And now we're scared that the wildlife we gave this disease to will transmit it back to cattle. And I think a lot of people have have noted that our perception to this risk is perhaps exaggerated that the risk is lower than than we actually think about that transmission. But we regularly see and cougars too. I I didn't mention they want to call cougars as well to protect cattle. And so when we create pasture, we often hear from ranchers, you know, who are just doing their best to protect their livelihood. Ranchers, by the way, I, I should note, you know, it's not all that profitable of a business, right? it's a culture as well. And, um, you know, so I empathize with them on on that regard. Those profit margins are so tight that many are are not breaking that profit margin at all. Like many see losses, um, many just straddle that profit margin. So when people like me, for example, call for better environmental management strategies like living with predators or um, you know lowering the amount of cattle on the landscape to reduce the intensity of grazing it's often met with a lot of disdain and opposition because that time is money and that extra work to preserve the environment or conserve the environment to a standard that I'm more comfortable with can be seen as a threat to their livelihood.
0: Right. Right. And if they're on a shoestring budget to start with, and the one thing that I have been able to witness and uh, share amongst our community is how many farmers and um, animal agriculture farmers have transitioned and how they're thriving and you know this was this was witnessed quite prolifically in a in one of the documentaries called milked milk ed you know in new zealand how all of their underground water is completely contaminated all their lakes all their rivers because they have a very small landmass and they're they have a lot of dairy cattle industry there dairy cows and how these farmers that are transitioning into microgreens and hemp and just simply vegetables to feed people—they're thriving. They're thriving. They're turning their their indoor chicken uh, areas into mushroom farms, and so I think that's going to be the way. Is that instead of saying you know let's let's try to allow the wildlife to have their place on the land? It's like hey. <laughs> let's give you a whole bunch more options. And you're right, it's moving out of that cultural norm, which is really challenging. For some people, they get very attached with that being their identity. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rancher. But when the people are, I don't know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's a piece of, they've had enough, you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired. A lot of suicide, a lot of death, a lot of suffering, a lot of bankruptcy, and a lot of ownership by big corporations that are that are controlling their seeds. So the hope really is and the possibilities are really in plant based ag- agriculture, because we need such a small amount of land to feed everyone and we can turn the rest back to the wildlife to repopulate because we're, you know, we've almost wiped out most of our wildlife. And this is a big deal. This is a really, really big deal.
1: That's right. And you just reminded me the wildlife um, biodiversity loss. One of my heroes is E.O. Wilson, mm-hmm. a famous ecologist. He, he focused on um, entomology, I believe, like the study of insects. He loved ants, but he he was a real big thinker as well, perhaps one of the most well-respected ecologists of our time. And he had a campaign, and it's a campaign that's still reigning strong today called Half Earth. Yes. And he once said that unless we, and I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I can a paraphrase. <laughs> he said, unless we, um, un, unless we put aside half of planet Earth and really try to understand biodiversity and protect half of natural spaces on Earth, we will soon lose most of of the species that compose it, something like that. Um, And I believe that. There's a lot of background where I believe there was a report not all that long ago that stated that since 1970, we've lost almost 70% of wildlife populations. Um, extinction isn't just losing species, it's losing individuals as well. Something to recognize. Um, so we have lost, uh, there was that other Baron report from 2018, which assessed the biomass distribution on planet Earth. Um, and what they found was that. Just taking mammals, terrestrial mammals, they found that 36% of the biomass is humans. 60% of the biomass is livestock. Only 4%, four measly little percent, is wildlife. 10,000 years ago, that was completely uh, the other way around, right? 4% human-related, the rest wildlife it's just a complete uh 360 shift it's the same with poultry the numbers are similar i think about a third of the biomass of birds is wild birds and the rest is poultry some something like that um so and it's just, massive
0: we've been replacing quickly yeah. you know even the piece of land that i that i get to caretake here the amount of birds I see compared to when I moved here 20 years ago is is minimal. Just minimal. I have not seen one ladybug this year. Oh. Um, Yeah, Captain Paul Watson in an interview a couple months ago said the insects are disappearing. You know, when we used to drive, I'm also from northern Ontario, like, like your mother and father and the hunter land and where most of my siblings are still hunting. And uh, when I used to drive in that area, my whole windshield within an hour, my whole front of my car would be full of insects. It's not the case anymore. Mm. And we have just normalized. We've normalized insects being pests. They are a nuisance to humanity. These bugs that we have, uh, a big swarm of honeybees decided to try to take home in my at my log house this year and it was just such an honor you know to see all these honeybees just surrounding my home and I'm not going to herd them out into some little box in my in my woods just letting them see what they can find and where they can find it The war on nature has to end, and I think that's one of the things that being plant-based and veganism does. I recently had a guest in my home, and I asked him if he noticed uh, any really major transitions in his psyche since he's become vegan, and he said, I've been vegan for five years now, and I can actually, and he was an environmentalist before that, so it was a girlfriend that he had met that said, this is why I'm vegan, and he said, that makes sense. And he went vegan overnight. And he said, five years later, I actually feel when I walk out into an ecosystem, I'm part of it. Mm. It was always like I was an observer on the outside. And now that I've been vegan, I feel like I am part of this ecosystem. Such a gift.
1: I love that. And there was something you said that really resonated with me. And perhaps it's a good segue to a story I have. Um, you, You talked about how 20 years ago, the population of birds um, in your backyard was a lot higher than it is now, right? Same with the the ladybugs. You haven't seen a ladybug. Um, a while ago, just a couple years ago now, an Indigenous colleague, um, and I've told this story many times before, I'll tell it again in a lecture I have coming up, but it's, it's one that really s- stuck out to me. Um, An Indigenous told me, he he told me, a a colleague of mine told me about how his, him and his father used to hunt for ptarmigan and grouse in the grasslands. And he said that the grasslands would be rustling with ground birds, a lively place, but not so much anymore. Of course, the dominant um, pressure on that landscape, uh, on those grasslands is cattle ranching, and you could see graphs that showed. you know. Uh, grazing intensity versus nesting bird habitat. The more intense grazing, the less nesting bird habitat. Those birds need um, tall grass to live. But, um, however, he said his grandfather, his grandfather would talk about flocks of ptarmigan and grouse in the grassland in, in greater numbers than he ever knew. Um, and I told re- this story to natural resource professionals, some that I worked with, and I was met with. Indigenous people, they always say that kind of, there's no evidence of that. And I find that this culture does persist in in, uh, professional circles, um, although it is getting better um, with respect to Indigenous people. You know, it only perpetuates the stereotype that Indigenous knowledge is inferior, counter to our aspirations of reconciliation. But I don't see much shift in, Um, accepting those kinds of stories grasslands by the way they they provide incredible ecosystem services um, especially for through a watershed lens like groundwater recharge and discharge erosion reduction flood mitigation fish habitat wildlife habitat water quality improvement carbon sequestration spiritual and cultural significance indigenous traditional foods and more but After he shared this story with me, you know, I didn't really know what to do with it. I didn't really know how to articulate it until I read the condor's shadow by one of my heroes an ecologist, David S. Wilcove. And in that book, he tells a story about when he was a kid, starting his bird watching adventures, the old timers would always say that the spring migration of birds just wasn't what it used to be. And he chalked it up to old age. He didn't believe them. He thought that it was memory loss, eyesight. He didn't believe it. But then 30 years later, he found himself saying the same thing, that the spring migration just wasn't what it used to be. And that the kids starting their bird watching adventures today, um, they'll never know what it was like when he was a kid. And he'll never know what it was like when the old timers were kids. And he calls this kind of generational amnesia perhaps the greatest impediment to a lasting conservation ethic in America today. But nobody said, oh, ecologists, they always say that kind of thing, or there's no evidence for that, no. David S. Wolkov, of course, he's a treasured scientist. He got a Pioneer of Science Award, he got a publication of the Year Award and many others. I share this with you and kind of circling back to the beginning of our talk, I think we've lost our point of reference.
0: We've lost our story. We've lost the beauty of the oral teachings.
1: Right. So it's so important that we listen to people and communities who've observed change. Our elders, I I love this grandmother movement you have, um, because we are incrementally disturbing ecosystems and each time we justify with one minimized impact, neglecting that impacts can aggregate over time with unforeseen consequences. Um, David Tillman is the the most cited ecologist of all time in the peer-reviewed literature he once said that humans are the dominant force creating change on the landscape and we don't know what the consequences of that are Um, you know I was speaking with an Indigenous colleague not all that long ago I think it was just a year or two ago and he asked me where I'm from and I don't really know because I was born in northern Ontario I lived in Elliott Lake, North Delta, Victoria, Strathcona Park, about a dozen places, perhaps on average, like three years each place I live. And uh, my colleague said that my perspective of the land is fleeting, you know? I'll never know the kind of understanding of a place that is built up over thousands of years, a place that sustained my parents and their parents and so on, like that connection a river or a lake or a landscape. My perspective of the land is fleeting. I naturally accept the state of land as it is, as I know it to be. That's my natural point of reference that I intuitively accept. And some have referred to this perspective or this cultural norm, I guess, as shifting baseline syndrome. And shifting baseline syndrome is a phenomenon where each successive generation accepts as normal the situation in which it finds itself in. And with the continual degradation of the natural landscape, this results in continually lowering our accepted norms for these ecological conditions, and the consequences of that results in inappropriate baselines for nature conservation, restoration and management. And, you know, what's really concerning for me is that it seems like our elders have been disempowered, who traditionally held the role as knowledge keepers, as knowledge transmitters, storytellers. And in the culture of the day, our elders are often displaced out of these meaningful roles. And as many have identified you as well here that so much important knowledge and stories that are not being transmitted down across generations in a meaningful way, um, as intergenerational biases, I I feel plagues our society, you know? And so I hope those who are listening here um, who consider themselves elders, Feel empowered to share for everyone's benefit and those who aren't elders to uplift those around you um, and empower them with that role once again, because it's so important. Um, Again, it goes back to general generational amnesia, um, you know, just perhaps the greatest threat to a lasting conservation ethic of today is um, as David S. Wilcove said.
0: Thank you, Corey. I feel that's what we're doing. We know that there's two pieces to this that I would like to you know, summarize as we're coming to the end of our podcast, is that as we're letting people know that plant-based power, veganism, is the answer to a world gone mad, and returning a land to its righteous owners, which are the wild um, beings, just the, the beings that belong to that land. I'm, I'm, I'm always a little bit concerned to use the word wild because it's been used as a way to create fear. But the natural habitat of the beings that belong on that land, and it's very easy to do when we when we um, are vegan. And yet I also hear you say we need to respect, the indigenous, the First Nations of Canada, the people's way. I do see a lot of people going plant based, and I don't know whether they stay that way or not. But I think that if we do it for that reason, because we need to at least I don't know if the half earth is going to be enough at this point, we need to return the majority of the earth back to its rightful position. And that is the ecosystems that thrive there. So the grandmothers are coming together and the grandchildren are leading the way. Story is a great way to capture this memory. I had the honor of having my grandkids live with me for a month as they were moving from one home to another. And they like to hear their dad tell creepy stories and they're not being raised vegan, but it's the hottest conversation. Because the first time, very same, similar situation, but different outcome, you were raised without eating flesh food, for predominantly from one year old onward. And at three, my grandson invited me out for a hamburger. And I said, Oma doesn't eat cows. He goes, it's not a cow, Oma, it's a hamburger. And I said, no, it's a cow. And he sat with that for about a month. And then he said something to his father, who sent me a pretty nasty text, just out of his own fear. And I just said, I'm not going to lie to my grandson, I didn't say anything negative, I just said I don't eat cows. So then that wasn't anything that could be argued with. and, And we've had a lot of interesting conversations since. But the creepy story that my granddaughter wanted, I told her this story about this beautiful beautiful ancient forest and one day people wanted to cut down all the trees so that they could have cows on that land and cattle and and all of the animals that live there and all of the monkeys and the the birds they were flying away and trying to find a home but a lot of them that's where they lived and they didn't want to leave and but they lost their home because all the trees were cut down and they had nowhere to go it was very creepy and my four-year-old granddaughter, she takes this long pause and she looks at me and she says, oh, that's why you're vegan. Hmm. So we need to convey with story. Story is a beautiful way to convey with art, the art of story. We have a convergence coming up. Climate Hillers has a convergence coming up October 28th and 29th, where I'm I'm going to be with some very long-term, long-time vegans, 50 plus years, Jeff Francis, uh, doing a presentation on the art of veganism. Captain Paul Watson is going to be our keynote speaker. We're going to have, um we're going to be talking about algae from, from phytoplankton to spirulina, which is an amazing source of protein with a very low carbon imprint. And Corey, I'd like you to wrap us up saying all the hopeful pieces that you have accumulated over the last little while in your work.
1: Yeah, well, I th- certainly think that there's a lot of progress. And I think people have a lot of power and in their influence mm-hmm. with others, right? Like there was that study that came out not all that long ago that um, looked at making plant-based a norm in, in, in university cafeterias. So rather than asking, can I replace that meat burger with a veggie patty, it was students would have to ask, I would like to replace that veggie patty with a meat patty. And what they found was that over the 80%- The default menu.
0: The yeah, default over, menu is working well. Mm-hmm. Menu,
1: over 80% um, you know, chose the default menu. That's huge, like, holy crow. Um, so I certainly think that we have power even just normalizing our behavior. And those right?
0: crows are holy.
1: Yeah, that's right. They are holy. Um, Normalizing that behavior, I think, is really important—not to position ourselves as being fringe, but making it a normal choice. And I always like to cater to my friends' palates, right? And then, ever so often, somebody's like, "Oh, I'd really like that recipe." Then, hey, they take that home and they have a vegan dinner, right? Something that they probably never had before. Um, You know, David Eby, our our premier here in British Columbia. He was an animal advocate too, after reading um, diet for what John Robbins book, uh, diet, diet for, for New America. America, that's right. When he was like 14 years old.
0: Yeah. Anyways. So, what, my, he, partner, my partner went vegan okay. uh, after reading that book when he was in his twenties. <laughs> oh,
1: great. Well, he, I I really appreciate David Eby. Um, he made a pledge protect 30% of British Columbia for natural areas as a stepping stone to E.O. Wilson's half earth. Mm. And I think a lot of folks are doing that. Um, A a lot of different regions have done that, countries around the world. Um, I think that there's progress. And I think that um, you with your amicable approach, you're so pleasant to talk to, also have great influence. And I think that It will influence others. There's a lot of great work being done, a lot of restoration activities. I was um, just touring uh, the Comox Valley Watershed Project where they're restoring an old sawmill back to its natural habitat, providing connectivity to Hollycock Flats across the way. Um, A lot of restoration work. And there's a lot of governments out there who are considering economically assessing ecosystem services as well. Like what is the service before we develop this piece of land? What services do they provide now? And, um, you know, are, are we going to maximize the benefit if we were to remove that ecosystem? I think that's a form of thinking that's um, leaking into the public sphere that is so, so positive. And um, I've heard biologists calling for a restoration economy as well. There's a lot of historical um, degradation that has occurred on our lands that people are putting their minds to and seeing the value of restoring. And it's this kind of mindset, this transitional moment, albeit slow and pragmatic. Um, You know, if we look over the course of the past 10 to 15 years, um, it's been a big change getting that way of thinking into the public sphere, um, especially in terms of regulation and, and um, the, the natural resource perspective um, or professionals putting their mind to it, um, reconciliation with First Nations. 20 years ago, it wasn't part of the day-to-day activities of government um, regulating ranching for example, now at every um, range management plan, they're working with Indigenous peoples, you know, that's just part of the way British Columbia, and I'm sure everyone in Canada is, uh, has to act to meet our obligations to section 35 of the Canadian constitution. It's these changes, which people might not see, occurring quickly, like it might not be all that noticeable. Um, but when you look back, when back look at the history, like that change is huge. And there's more to come. So I think there's more to come. I see a lot of positivity. You know, Aldo Leopold, uh, another one of my ecological heroes, once said that to receive an ecological education um, is to live alone in a world full of wounds. Well, I don't, I used to feel that way, but I don't anymore. I don't feel alone in a world full of wounds. I find myself in a community here to mend those wounds together. And I feel that here with you. Um, before we end, our about plant powered protein. <laughs> um, if your listeners are interested, uh, wrote this book with two of my heroes, and lifelong mentors, Brenda Davis, my mom, and Vasanto Molina, who's been in my life for as long as I can remember teaching me about food. And uh, I just love them both dearly. I have a section in here about the environment. A lot of it is just to dispel that myth or put an end to the question of where do you get your protein?
0: The most common and very over asked question. When did the book come out, Corey?
1: April this year.
0: Awesome. Do you want to just flip? I'll tell you when to stop. And you just read us one paragraph in that book. Sure. Uh, stop.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, make your food look yummy. When Aisha brought leftover beans and rice for lunch one day, some of her friends thought it looked gross. Aisha wanted to, wanted to do what she could to avoid harsh judgment. sometimes, she brought lunches that looked like everyone else's. But other times she would mix things up with a big, colorful salad and crackers with vegan cheese or hot soup and crusty bread. We go through in this book and tell stories in almost every chapter.
0: And, I love uh, it.
1: Provide solutions. I think it's great. And at the very end, we have a suite of recipes and uh, some pictures here.
0: Oh, what amazing beautiful.
1: desserts. Look. We had recipe testers um, go back and forth with us on these recipes until we landed on five stars for each one so i highly <laughs> recommend it i love the chickpea smash um there's other great recipes like the gado gado or the cookies in here please check it out um you can check out our website at plant-poweredprotein.com uh, to learn more
0: I would like a couple autographed copies of those that I will give you my address to get them my way and right. uh, and start Sounds sharing good. them with my people. Thank you very Sounds much. Good. This has been a real pleasure, uh, Corey. Any final words of inspiration from one of your mentors that just pops into your head?
1: Hmm. I think, well, you know, I just want to say to everybody that um, there's been a lot of communication online. Um, a book came out recently that um, shifts the power that consumers have. They, they say, oh, well, you know, um, your personal actions don't mean all that much. It's all the CEOs who are making money off of environmental degradation they really don't have that. Power. I don't feel that way. And I want people to stay empowered. I think that individuals have a lot of influence over communities over the market. We are part of the market. And I don't want us to become disillusioned with this idea that we can shift the blame just to CEOs or, or to governments, but we all have a role to play. And I think that with that, Mahatma Gandhi he said, be the change you want to see. And I truly believe that um, even if we feel disempowered that our individual actions don't make a difference on the world which i think they do i truly think they do um the power of be the change you want to see um really is inspiring for me both mentally and spiritually as well to be the person that i want to be right i want to see my actions reflect my values and um Just that in and of itself is so fulfilling for me. And I just wanted to share that last thought um, because I was listening to to a podcast about this, the author of a book. It's really shifting the blame. And I I, I agree with him in a sense. Like, yes, um, people are making a lot of money off of our degrading environment, but that shouldn't strip the power that we have. That shouldn't disempower the consumer uh, the influence that our choices have. Perhaps that's a good, good way to leave it.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Corey. My, my first book was called Earth Gut, and how could we ever feel alone? Because the gut that we have is reflected of our earth, the microbial diversity, um, the, the, the earth that we praise or poison is sitting right in our gut, right in our epicenter of our instincts. In the word Sisu, which means vigor, in Finn, my father's a Finlander, means to have guts. So in loving ourselves, let's come back to our gut instincts. Let's come back to our sacred sovereignty and we cannot possibly ever be alone. And I think that's the great awakening that's happening on planet Earth right now. we realize that there is no them and us. That is, that is just the truth and that everything we do matters and that they either bring us closer together to our authentic personhood that is part of the whole or further away. And so I wish everyone an opportunity to get to know Corey. You can find him at Corey Davis, C-O-R-Y Davis and the Million Vegan Grandmothers through the Million Vegan Grandmothers uh, at Climate Healers. And I wish everyone a beautiful opportunity to be the change today in the small and great ways that you just show up in love. Thank you, Corey. Thank you so much. Namaste, vegan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Namaste.